mentioned that we are studying Exodus at the moment, so we're going to read now from um, Exodus chapter 7. You'll find that at page 49 if you're using one of the church Bibles. We're going to be coming shortly to uh, the plagues in Exodus, um, solemn part of, of the book. And this morning we're in a passage that is a, a, a precursor to, to all of that. It's a, a foreshadowing and a forewarning of what lies before us. We're going to read in from chapter 6, verse 28, and then uh, partway through chapter 7. Exodus 6 from 28. Let's read and hear together the Word of God. On the day when the Lord spoke to Moses in the land of Egypt, the Lord said to Moses, I am the Lord. Tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, all that I say to you. But Moses said to the Lord, Behold, I am of uncircumcised lips. How will Pharaoh listen to me? And the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. Now Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, when Pharaoh says to you, prove yourselves by working a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh, that it may become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers, and they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret arts. For each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Still, Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. Amen. May God bless to us the reading of His Word. We're just going to uh, turn directly to that passage in Exodus 7, Exodus 7, 1 to 13. We're covering this morning, so please uh, do have that open. If you have a Bible there, it will be helpful to you um, to have that open in front of you so that you can follow uh, more closely what we're, what we're talking about. And as we come to consider these verses, let's uh, pray together now. Lord God, our Father, give us, give us open eyes, give us listening ears, Give us obedient hearts, we pray, as we come to your word. Speak to us, and may we be hearers, and may we be doers of this perfect word. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Sometimes the opening skirmish gives you a fair idea of what way the battle is going to go. Sometimes the forces are just so unevenly matched that there can never really be much doubt about the outcome. It's a foregone conclusion. And there's something of that sense of impending doom 
hanging over these verses we read from Exodus 7. What we'll see here is that Pharaoh isn't really standing in opposition to Moses, but to God. He is a small K king, squaring up to the capital K king, and that particular confrontation is only ever going to end one way. In reality, this this face-off between Moses and Pharaoh conceals a deeper conflict. Behind Moses stands God, and behind Pharaoh stands Satan. There is spiritual warfare unfolding here. God had promised to make His people great, and Pharaoh has decided to make them slaves. That was one of the foundational promises of God, one of His covenant promises. And whenever you see such a blatant and direct attempt to to deflect those promises and the purposes of God, you know that the evil one is behind it, seeking to prevent the fulfillment of the covenant which God has made with His people. Well, God's had enough of it. This is going to end, and our passage this morning is the beginning of the end. It's the opening skirmish in the showdown between Israel and her God on the one hand, and Pharaoh and his on the other. Overshadowing this whole section, then, is a a sense of the supreme authority of the living God. And that's our basic theme for this morning. He has total command and control of everything that's unfolding. Up to this point, Moses has mostly been panicking. The Israelites have mostly been complaining. Pharaoh has mostly been beating his chest. And God has been biding his time. But now, in chapter 7, seconds out, round 1, an uneven contest begins. Of course, even though God has total authority, Moses still has to go and confront Pharaoh. So, the first thing we need to note here is that God exercises His authority through His workers and words. God exercises His authority through His workers and His words. God could have just struck down Pharaoh. He could have just looked and said, Pharaoh, you're, you're gone. And, and he would have been gone. Um, but he sends Moses and Aaron, and he tells them what to say. So, look at this amazing statement the Lord makes to Moses in verse 1. See, he says, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. That seems a fairly surprising thing for God to say to someone. Uh, But it's actually even more radical than it appears. Our English translations are trying to help us to understand what this means, but what God literally says to Moses is, I have made you God to Pharaoh. Not made you like God, I have made you God to him. What does that mean? Well, just consider, consider this scene for a moment from a human perspective. Here you have Pharaoh, king of all he surveys, surrounded by all the trappings of empire. He's no doubt sitting on some magnificent throne in some magnificent palace with servants poised to meet his every need. This is the man who snaps his fingers and things, things happen. His kingdom is served by a nation of slaves, And now some spokesman has appeared, some fool who grew up in the royal court, no less, but threw it all away, and he has the temerity to to demand the release of these slaves. There he stands with a stick of some kind, some sort of shepherd's staff or something. Um, Pharaoh is not impressed. There sits Pharaoh with the royal scepter of power. So, what on earth does it mean in a situation like that for the Lord to say to Moses, I have made you God to Pharaoh. Well, the simple and astonishing fact of it all is that contrary to all appearances, Moses has authority 
over Pharaoh. Moses has authority over Pharaoh. Remember, the the Pharaohs were seen by their people as divine. Moses is going to be standing before someone who considers himself a god. But Moses will be God to him. That doesn't mean Pharaoh is going to kind of instantly bow down and do everything that Moses commands any more than people do that when they know what God is telling them. But Moses will be God to him. It means that as God's ambassador, Moses carries the authority and dignity of God himself. It's an amazing thing. Here's a couple of octogenarians about to stand before the most powerful man in the world. And God tells them before they go, just know as you do this, as you stand in front of Pharaoh, know that you're in charge because I have made it so. It's strongly reminiscent, I think, of another scene. I wonder if it comes to mind. Another scene of confrontation in the Bible. When Christ stands before Pilate for judgment. But whose judgment? Jesus makes no reply to all the accusations, all the charges thrown against him. Pilate says to him, will you not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? What does Jesus say to him? You would have no authority at all if it had not first been given to you from above. See, sometimes appearances are deceptive. All authority belongs to God. And I think there are two main reasons why God says what he says here about Moses being God to Pharaoh. The the first thing is that it makes it crystal clear that through Moses and Aaron, the Egyptian court is, is not only being addressed by men, but is being confronted by God. That's important because of the judgment that is going to follow. If we're going to understand what follows in the coming chapters, we need, to, we need to get this. If Moses is God to Pharaoh, then when Pharaoh rejects his demands, he's not just rejecting Moses, is he? Remember what, again, again, it's reflected in the life of Jesus. Do you remember when Jesus sent out the 72, 72 of his followers to go into the towns and villages and to preach? What, what did he say to them? He told them that those who rejected them would be rejecting him and that those who rejected him would be rejecting the one who sent him. That's how it is here. Pharaoh's rejection of Moses is a rejection of God. He stands in direct defiance of the living God, and that means that his coming judgment will be just. Second reason God says what he says to Moses, I think, is just to help him, maybe to... uh, maybe to help his knees to start knocking a little bit less than they have been. Moses, know that when you do my work, you go with my authority. It's a good thing for Christians to know, isn't it? When you do my work, you go with my authority. Great servants of God throughout history have not been men and women with an astonishing level of self-confidence, but rather those who have been gripped by the sense that they do what they do by the authority of God. God's servants should never be arrogant, far from it. But we've lost something today, I think, of the assurance that comes from knowing that God has commissioned us to work for Him. Think of the ambassador um, overseas who goes about his work in the knowledge that he has a commission from the queen. He has her authority to do the work that he's doing. And and that creates in him a quiet confidence and calm. 
So God exercises his authority through his workers, but I've also said that he exercises it through his words. And, and throughout these chapters, we see really clearly that the authority of Moses depends on his obedience to his commission. The, the, the queen's ambassador overseas can't do anything he likes because he's the queen's ambassador. He has to be doing what she has commanded him to do. He can't just go and make up foreign policy. I'm the ambassador. I can do what I like. No, you're bound by the terms of your commission. And in verse 2, it's very clear that the duty of Moses is to say exactly what God tells him to say. You shall speak all that I command you, God says. And that's part of a wider pattern in these chapters. You can follow that through where God gives to Moses the very words that he needs to say. It's very precise. Say this to the elders of Israel, and they're going to say that to you. And when they say that, you should say this. Then you're going to go and speak to Pharaoh and say this to him, and he's going to say such and such to you, and then you need to say this. God gives him very precisely the words that he is to use. And so, and so, like the ambassador, the only way for Moses to be a man with authority is for him first to be a man under authority. He quite simply needs to say what God asks him to say and do what God asks him to do. It's as, it's as simple as that. He needs to pass on God's words because that's what God's servants do. And nothing else that they do counts for anything if they don't do that. It would be easy. I highlighted it with the kids. I think otherwise it might be easy to, to scan past it. But these verses contain a major turning point in the book of Exodus. Gave the clue on the front of the service sheet. There, verse 6, chapter 7, verse 6. Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. Verse 10. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. That just as commanded is, is intended to convey a, a, the, the, the Hebrew text is, is emphatic. It's, it's highlighting that, that what is happening here now, finally, is precise obedience. That, that's what this means, precise obedience. And I think we're to understand that this doesn't just refer to this kind of next time that they go to Pharaoh, this, they stand before him, and on that occasion they say, I think we're to understand that this is the beginning of, of something new. This is a pattern that's beginning and, and that will follow from this point forward. They're by no means perfect. Moses and Aaron will, will still make serious mistakes. I mean, Aaron will, will create the golden calf at Mount Sinai, of all things. So they're by no means perfect, but certainly throughout the Exodus narrative, throughout the plagues and, and, and the Passover and so on, there is a pattern of very precise obedience. As Alec Matir puts it, he, he says that Moses entered the presence of the Lord <clears throat> at the end of chapter 5 with complaints about his failure. He emerged, as subsequent chapters will prove over and over again, as the man who had no words other than those God had taught him, no acts other than those God had commanded, and no position except that of a man sent by God. This is, this is the beginning of a new obedience on the part of Moses, and because of that, it's a turning point in the book of Exodus. Things are going to happen because God exercises his authority through his workers and his words. So what then does God do with that authority? Well, I want to focus in for a few minutes on verses 2 to 5. And what we find there is that God demonstrates his sovereignty in salvation and in judgment. God demonstrates his authority in salvation and in judgment. For various reasons, it's very important to get this into our minds. 
We were thinking last week about the sovereignty of God, the one who calls himself simply, I am who I am. Uh, His sovereignty is his rule. It's his active reign as king over all things, as creator, king of the universe. In Exodus, we, we see the reign of God demonstrated. We see the glory of God magnified in the salvation of his people. Again, we considered that to some extent last week. If you remember last Sunday, one of the things that will happen when God redeems His people from slavery is, chapter 6, verse 7, that you shall know that I am the Lord. Remember that last week? Over and over again, I am the Lord, and when I redeem you, you will know that I am the Lord. God is very keen to, to drill this into His people. You will know my identity as your covenant king, great sovereign Lord, but covenant king. So, to that end, God repeats here in verse 4, I I will bring my hosts, the people, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt. God is going to demonstrate His sovereignty. He's going to magnify His glory by saving His people. It's a wonderful, positive thing. But these verses make it clear, don't they, that He is also going to demonstrate His sovereignty and magnify His glory in the judgment of His enemies. Given that Pharaoh and his cohorts have set themselves against God, he makes clear at verse 4 that he is going to lay hands on Egypt, not in a good way, in a violent way. They will feel the weight of God's hand upon them. He will perform great acts of judgment. He will stretch out his hand against them. And what will the result be in verse 5? The Egyptians, the Egyptians will know what? I am the Lord. My people will know it as they're saved, but the Egyptians, even as they are condemned, will know that I am the Lord. So, so not only will the sovereign glory of God be made manifest to His people, but even His enemies will see it. And so, paradoxically, it will be through the rebellion of Pharaoh, through his stubborn sinfulness and hardness of heart, that God's glory will be fully displayed. This is the astonishing wisdom of God that just defies our categories. Even the hatred of those who hate Him will only serve in the end to magnify Him. I, I know someone who came up with a strange notion. It's like, anybody ever, somebody ever say something to you and you just kind of look at them? And, you know, I, I just came up with a strange notion that in the end, the whole plan of salvation needs to be numerical. Um, there have to be more people saved than lost. This was his notion. There have to be more people saved than lost because otherwise God uh, has lost. That's a very strange notion. Okay? Um, don't know where it comes from. I've got no idea what the proportions will be in the end. Not a clue. We, we don't know. We don't know the patterns of history. But that was his idea. What lay behind that idea? One of the, one of the reasons it's wrong-headed is that it assumes that God is only glorified in the salvation of His people and not in the judgment of His enemies. It assumes that God is only glorified in the salvation of His people and not in the judgment of His enemies. The condemnation of the unbelieving is some kind of failure. No. No. These are weighty things. These are solemn things. They are on the boundaries of what mortal minds can comprehend. But we need to understand that God is glorified in salvation and in judgment. 
when all things come to their fulfillment in eternity. No one is going to be thinking that it was terrible the way God had to judge those people who rejected Him. If only God had managed to persuade them. You know? It's horrible how He had to judge them. No, no, one, no one is going to think that. Every knee will bow. Every knee. And those who are taken to glory will wonder both at the grace of their own salvation, they will glorify God for it, and they will wonder at the sheer rightness and justice and goodness of all that God has done in salvation and in judgment. He has purged the world of evil. And those who are taken to hell will go there hating God, but knowing that His judgments are right. These are solemn things, aren't they? But we need to understand God is glorified in salvation and in judgment. Along the way, while we have some more of the language here of the hardening of Pharaoh's heart, which I mentioned a few weeks ago, we'll pick up on aspects of that over the coming weeks, but we're not going to go into it again here except to remind ourselves that God's hardening of Pharaoh's heart is itself a judicial act. Pharaoh is not. Please do not think for one moment that Pharaoh is a poor, misunderstood soul who wants to let God's people go, and God just won't let him. Pharaoh is an evil tyrant. Pharaoh is actively seeking to perpetrate wickedness of Holocaust proportions. This is, on a, man, this is a man on a par with Hitler, Stalin, and IS. Someone who needs to be stopped. And God's chosen method of stopping him is first to take the brakes off, and allow him to plumb the depths of his own depravity, and then to bring judgment upon him. That's why you have this whole series of conversations between Moses and God, where Moses goes to God and says, but God, Pharaoh's not going to listen to me. And God says, yes, Moses, you're right. You're absolutely right. Now go and talk to Pharaoh. This is my plan. Hundreds of years ago, um, John Calvin considered the question of why that is. Why does God allow Pharaoh to rebel? Why does God allow this to go all the way through the, the horrible, actually increasingly horrible sequence of plagues that we're going to see over the next few weeks? Rather than just, you know, God could have arranged it so that Moses walked into the presence of Pharaoh and Pharaoh fell down dead. God could have done that if he'd wanted to. So why did he do it this way? Well, John Calvin came up with a reason. Actually, being John Calvin, he came up with six reasons. So, here we go. Number one, this way allowed, him to allowed God to demonstrate His own power more clearly and more fully. Number two, this way allowed Him to demonstrate His love for His people more clearly and fully by a salvation won through contending with perseverance against the opposition of an evil king. Number three, this way allowed Him to demonstrate to His people that they should always be patient and trust in His salvation even when it takes time to unfold. That actually was, uh, I think, one of Sean's main applications a few weeks ago in an earlier part of, of this story. Patience waiting for God to do His work. Number four, this way allowed God to demonstrate that He will always prevail against all the strivings of Satan and all the hindrances thrown up by His opponents, no matter what the appearances might be. Number five, this way allowed God to demonstrate to His church that they should be wary against a scheming enemy. Number six, this way allowed him to demonstrate 
the determined sinfulness and folly of the Egyptians, and how dark is the mindset against him in sin. I think you could actually add number seven. God's way of salvation through the plagues and and all the rest of it made it crystal clear to everyone that the redemption of his people from their slavery was the accomplishment not of a great man called Moses, but of the living God himself. Moses had gone to Pharaoh, and Pharaoh said, oh, Moses, absolutely, I'm completely persuaded. You're you're amazing. I'm terrified by you. I'm I'm just going to let the people go. And everyone would have said, whoa, look at Moses. But by this means, everyone is left saying, look at this God. In, in amazement, in terror, in wonder, in awe, look at this God. Look at what he's done. And so they would know, Israelites and Egyptians alike, that I am the Lord. God's sovereignty is demonstrated and His glory magnified in salvation and in judgment. It is a… What does this have to do with us? Well, partly we just need to know this so that we can understand the rightness and justice of God's ways and, and the goodness of, of His final judgment. But, but there's, there's another application of this too. This is, a, this is, again, a very solemn thing, and it's a sobering thing for a preacher to have to say out loud. But the clear testimony of the Bible is that as the gospel is preached two things are happening. One is that some are receiving the truth with open, glad, thankful hearts, and it's therefore a truth which will save them. The other is that some are receiving the truth with closed, hard, resentful hearts, and it's therefore a truth which will condemn them. And that is the purpose of the preaching of the gospel, both of these things. As Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians 2, the very same messengers and message are a fragrance of life to some and a fragrance of death to others. It's just reflecting what Jesus himself said about the dividing function of his own teaching. It's in Matthew 13, um, the disciples said to Jesus, you know, why do you keep using parables? Why don't you just speak plainly? You keep talking in parables. Why do you do this? Jesus explained the purpose of a parable is that a parable divides those who have ears to hear and those who don't. Some people are are looking for the truth, and some people are not. They assumed Jesus' only purpose was to convert as many people as He could, but on that measure, we would have to conclude that Jesus had failed, because the vast majority of people, as far as we know, who heard Jesus preach didn't believe in Him. Nonetheless, His preaching was perfect. It just fulfilled its function of separating those who had ears to hear and those who didn't. In the end, all will bow before God. At the final judgment, uh, all will be brought before Him. You and I will be there. Moses will be there. Pharaoh will be there. The only hope any of us will have on that day is the grace of the gospel. Those who have heard and responded to that grace will bow in love and devotion before the Lord. Those who have hardened their hearts against God will bow in defeat and fear. But all will bow and all will bring glory to God. And lest there should be the slightest suspicion of injustice in this, we need to consider uh, verses 8 to 13, this final part of this passage. Here we have um, what I'm tempted to describe as a staff meeting, confrontation between the staff of Moses and Aaron and the staffs of uh, 
Pharaoh's magicians. The whole incident, this incident is a foreshadowing, it's a preview of the plague narrative to come. And the point is this, God anticipates his judgment through wonders and warnings. God anticipates his judgment through wonders and warnings. Pharaoh is put on notice here that continued rebellion will lead to the devastating punishment and utter humiliation of him and his people. You'll remember the the changing of the staff into a snake was one of the signs God gave Moses back at Mount Horeb, partly to persuade the Israelite elders that he really was sent and commissioned by God as he claimed, but partly also to confront Pharaoh with the reality of God and warn him of the coming judgment of God. You'll maybe remember, if you were here that week, the significance of the, the snake uh, to, to Egypt, the symbol of Egyptian authority. The most famous, I brought the picture again, the most famous representation of it um, being in Tutankhamun's death mask. Uh, where if, you were, if you ever spoke to a pharaoh, you were confronted by a cobra with, with raised hood in the center of his forehead. If you, if you harm me, I will strike. This is the symbol of Egyptian power. It's the symbol of one of the Egyptian gods. It's a cobra and a vulture, um, but the cobra, the central one there the symbol of Egyptian authority. So when Aaron throws down his staff, it's presumably the same staff that Moses was holding earlier. When Aaron throws this down and it turns into a snake, he's throwing down the gauntlet. This is a direct challenge to Egyptian authority and rule. Seconds out, round one. Here we go. The battle is on. Pharaoh calls in his sorcerers, presumably on the basis that the god with the best magic wins, calls them in, can you do this? They go away into a huddle, they come back, and then something really unexpected happens. Verse 12, each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents. What on earth is going on? I mean, be honest, you know, if you didn't know the story already, you wouldn't have expected that to happen, would you? There have been lots of suggestions about what exactly is going on. For some people, these guys were basically Paul Daniels or David Blaine or somebody, you expect Debbie McGee to pop up at the side. Um, This is just smoke and mirrors, you know, some kind of conjuring trick or something. For other people, well, others have noted that it's possible, it's apparently possible if you know what you're doing, um, to, to press down on the nerve of a snake, on a certain nerve, and, and, and paralyze it. And, and the, stakes, the snake stiffens. So the theory goes, they'd done this, they, you know, they did this out the back, they brought them in, they looked like, from a distance, they looked like, like staffs. And then you throw it down on the ground and the jolt wakes it up and it starts slithering around. All very interesting, but I think all the signs are that the truth is much darker. When the Bible speaks of people doing things by secret arts and sorcery, which is the language that's used here, it's usually talking about wickedness rather than illusion. And I think the most natural explanation of these verses is that these were men who were dabbling in the occult. I said earlier that behind Moses stands God and behind Pharaoh stands Satan. He is real and his power is real. Most of what happens in the name of the occult is just sheer nonsense. A good proportion of it is just sheer fraud. But the real reason it's such a no-go area for Christians is that there really is satanic power at work in the world. And I think that's what we're seeing here. But of course, the impressiveness of the sorcerer's work is short-lived, isn't it? Still verse 12. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. 
I, I don't think you need to be an expert in Egyptian culture to, to kind of understand the impact of that moment, the significance of that moment. But it maybe does help to know, I mean, it's, that, the symbolism of that is fairly obvious in any culture, but it maybe does help to know that Egypt was one of various cultures, it's not uncommon even today, where to swallow something is a way to acquire its power. So here God is putting Pharaoh on notice in unmistakable terms of his infinitely superior, overwhelming power. As with Pilate many years later, all the power that Pharaoh wields really belongs to God. And this is such a clear warning, isn't it? If you do not repent of your wickedness, I will consume you. The word, the word swallow, the, the, the Hebrew term for swallowing appears twice in Exodus. It appears here where um, one snake swallows up the other snakes, and it appears in chapter 15 to describe how the Egyptian army is swallowed by the Red Sea as God releases it back over them. Again, given the, the, the increasingly appalling plagues with which God will judge Egypt in the coming chapters, it's important to appreciate Pharaoh is given every opportunity to repent. He's given every warning every opportunity to take a different course. But he doesn't listen because he never was listening. It's assumed in the narrative there that he'll ask for a sign. When Pharaoh asks you for a sign, you know, Pharaoh's one of these guys, you've maybe met these people. You know, if God would only show me, if God would only just make it obvious, if we just do something. Um, do something amazing, God. Come on, do it now. Um, people do that. I, I would believe, honestly, I would believe. What did Jesus say? Even if someone were to rise from the dead, they would not believe. Right, he was. Pharaoh's one of these guys. Honestly, just show me. Show me the power of your God. I'll believe in him. Snake swallows the other snakes. Aaron picks it up again. It's a staff. I will not let your people go. It's a stark reminder of the frightening stubbornness of sin. And it is a stark warning to anyone who hears the gospel of Christ and does not respond in faith. Never, if you're in that category today, if you're here, but you're not believing, don't fool yourself that, you know, if God just did something, then I would believe. No, you wouldn't. Christ rose from the dead. His prophets and apostles were given signs and wonders to authenticate the truthfulness of their message. We read about them in the Bible. But the glorious thing is that their message was one of salvation from judgment. Flee the wrath to come. Christ has made a way. This is freely available to you. Receive His salvation. In a few minutes, we're going to come to the Lord's table, uh, the Lord's Supper, and we will remember. We will remember one who was plunged under the wrath of God, one who was swallowed by judgment that we might not have to be. Yes, our, our God is a consuming fire. His judgment is terrifying. But for all who will trust in Christ, that judgment has been started and finished at the cross of Calvary. It's done. Our sins fall on Jesus there. He bears them, and then this gospel is proclaimed to all the world. The unmistakable warning of a terrible judgment to come. 
and the almost unbelievable offer of a free and full salvation for all who will receive it. Sometimes there's no doubt what way the battle is going to go. We'll sing it uh, slightly later this morning as we close. When faced with trials on every side, we know the outcome is secure, for Christ will have the prize for which He died, an inheritance of nations. God is in complete command. He's made His authority known through His workers and His words. He's made clear that He will be glorified in salvation and in judgment. He has given every warning of what is to come, and He has made full provision through Christ for all who will receive His salvation and be redeemed from slavery for glory. Let's pray. Lord God, it's a a solemn thing. We do not take it lightly. Whenever we come to part of Your Word, which as this next section will do, as this whole section of Your Word will do, speaks to us of the awfulness of of divine judgment. Help us, we pray, to receive these words today and the words to come in the the coming weeks in a way that is good and healthy and life-giving. Help us to hear the warning. If there are any of us who who are not secure in Christ, who have not turned to Christ, we're not trusting in Him or we're not sure, Father, open our ears to hear the warning. Soften our hearts, we pray. Soften them. Give grace to us to soften them. May we long to hear, to do, to obey, to trust, to know ourselves, secure in Christ, saved in Christ. And Father, for those of us who who have come to Him in faith, we pray that You would reassure us of this safety that is ours. Fill our hearts with wonder at the the grace of it. We who deserve this same judgment, but you have come to us. You've made yourself known to us. There have been servants in the past who have have spoken to us your word, and, and in a sense, they have been God to us. We've heard your voice. You you sent them to us, and, and we heard, and by your grace, by your grace alone, that word found its way into our hearts, and we bent the knee before you. Father, we give thanks for your grace towards us. We give thanks for your goodness, and we praise you with, with, with trembling hearts. We praise you for the goodness of your salvation and your judgment. Give us hearts that long for your world, that, that hurt for those who, who are on a path to something terrible and that are willing to go, to obey your command, to go, to tell the world who Jesus is, what He has done, what it means to us, what it means for them. And as we go, go with us, we pray. May we go with a sense that we are under your authority, but going with your authority. This is the truth. As we seek to speak to our, our, our family and our friends, uh, those that we know about the things of Christ, remind us this is true. This is the most important truth there is. And send us out then boldly to make you known. Help us in these things, we pray, for we ask it in Jesus' name. 
Amen.